Hey, podcast world. This is Ramon Sanchez. I'm an associate clinical social worker out in California and host of Desigmatize, a roundtable mental health podcast where professionals I know, members of my community, and some of my friends can discuss topics worth destigmatizing. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, I brought three individuals who have seen addiction firsthand and are willing to help me destigmatize substance use disorders, the stigmas around someone who is suffering with addiction, and how one can help them towards recovery. My first guest is Julian Alberto Delgado, a program director at Phoenix House Addiction Rehab and Mental Health Treatment Center. Julian is a proud alumni of CSU Bakersfield with dual master's degrees in clinical psychology and administration, pursuing licensures in both clinical counseling and marriage and family therapy. Julian agreed to join Destigmatize to share some of his knowledge to help individuals and families struggling with substance use disorders. My next guest is Charlie Van de Borde, a Navigation Center Program Manager at Flood Ministries in Arvin, California. Charlie is working towards becoming a certified alcohol drug counselor and obtaining his bachelor's, all while overcoming substance use disorders in various aspects of his life. Charlie is joining Desigmatize to encourage those who have experienced depression and trauma from substances to not be afraid to reach out for help. My final guest is Nicole Beza, a behavioral counselor at Phoenix House Addiction, Rehab, and Mental Health Treatment Center. Nicole is a Master's of Clinical Counseling candidate through Grand Canyon University. Nicole is bringing both professional and personal experience into our conversation. And now, here's our episode. All right. This is episode seven. And this is where we're going to go ahead and focus on substance use disorders. Welcome, everyone. Hi. All right. So we're going to go ahead and address uh, a couple of things. So the first thing that I really, really want to address, it goes directly to Charlie. I, I have to go ahead and ask you, man, how many times do you do people ask you regarding your, you know, your your last name? <laughs> Everybody asks lots and lots of questions. Can you imagine spelling that and saying it when you're younger? Oh, my gosh. Your, <laughs> your kindergarten years must have been horrible. Horrible. <laughs> and I still can't speak right. Oh. But uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, I get asked a lot. Uh, say the Vandeborys, Vandevore, uh, and I'm like, it's spelled pretty much. You can uh, say it as it's, as it's, as it's spelled, right? Vandeborg. No, oh, so I messed it up. Vandeborg. Okay, so. Yeah. <laughs> from Harry Potter, yeah. <laughs> you're horrible. She said what? She said Voldemort from Harry Potter. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, know, you, know, right you know who that is? <laughs> yeah, isn't that uh, the big guy? Yeah, like yeah. the scary one. Okay, yeah. yeah, it's super scary. Well, welcome everyone. Um, so again, we're gonna go ahead and address some, um, you know, some pretty heavy topics today. Um, so today we're going to go ahead and address substance use disorders, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, legal or illegal drugs. There's no doubt that people struggle with substance use disorders and addictions, right? Right. And I mean, you guys see that on an everyday basis. Is that not fair to say? Yeah. Yes. Fair to say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, when we may see it in the streets, you know, when, when it's a person panhandling, you know, someone may actually label him as an addict simply because they look way too young and, you know, that's prevalent. You know, and that prevents people from actually donating, you know, and, and giving them some money because they're like, oh, well, they're young and they don't need it. But in some way, shape or form, you know, there's some people that don't choose homelessness and uh, and this addiction that comes with it. 
So we'll be discussing, uh, you know, this substance use disorder with with these guests. And uh, but I just wanted to go ahead and get your thoughts with that. You know, when it comes down to to homelessness, um, you know, and I'll go kind of first hand to you, uh, Charlie. You you've gone through some homelessness in, in your life, right? Yeah, uh, I experienced uh, homelessness since about 2011. Um, I lasted about a year, um, and then I got incarcerated. Uh, and I fought a uh, fought a carjacking case on that one, and uh, by the grace of the Lord, uh, it got dropped down to a uh, grand theft of the person. And you would th- you would think that uh, I would change my ways after that, right? Um, I was facing ten years ten years in prison um, at eighty five percent with two strikes, and um, and I was blessed. I, I got it uh, knocked down. I fought it for a while, and um, when I did my time of state. And I got out, and uh, and I went right back to using. And I went uh, the day they let me out at uh, at I was at uh, Norco State Prison CDC or CRC. Uh, they took me to they took it to the bus stop. I got on the train. I took it to the Union Station downtown LA. I went and found a, a person, and we went to Santa Monica, and I used. You know. And it just shows that uh, how. How much that addiction can take a grip, uh, take a hold of your life? Yeah, for sure. How old were you when you first uh, started using? When I first started using uh, meth, I was twenty-eight. Twenty-eight years yeah. old. Yeah. What about alcohol? Alcohol. When I first started using uh, on a regular basis, I was uh, eighteen. About eighteen. Yeah, about eighteen. Gotcha. Yeah. Julian, do do you hear stories like this on you know on on a daily basis being a a program director of an organization? Yeah, I do hear a lot of stories like that. Um, you know, in my case, hearing these stories, it primarily comes for youth. Um, all of them under 18 who have experienced all kinds of substance use uh, history from meth, heroin. Nowadays, one of the most common things that we're seeing is fentanyl. That has been very dominant right now on the streets. Um, but... Just like Charlie said, uh, it does tend to lead to the homelessness aspect, either because they don't have a structured home that that they could live at, or they get pushed away by the family due to you know domestic violence or just not the appropriate support in the in the house. Yeah, and they may just the family may just say, you know what, we're kind of over this. We're kind of over you using and putting our family in danger and you know, a lot of times it comes from stealing or is that like a stereotype? Um I want to say you get a good range of everything. Um you have families who are well established, good dynamics, parents are well educated, have good careers going and Somehow the the youth gets entangled with substances, either through peers, school, just the neighborhood. It just depends on some circumstances like that. Uh, but then you also have the extreme side where you have complete, completely parents who are not involved, just completely neglectful to to the youth, uh, to their kid, basically. Um, and then also we have parents just not in the picture. Right. And there tends to be kids who are in group homes, foster homes, um, and those kids tend to jump back and forth through those places, which is even more complicated during their treatment. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, and you, Nicole, you, you see this more on, on an everyday basis, right? Since you work directly with these youth or, you know, do you work with the youth adults or? I do work with youth as well. Um, like Julian said, anywhere, um, between the ages right now, we're dealing with 13 to 18 years old. Um, just bouncing off of what you guys both said, I give you some kudos because taking yourself out of homelessness and, you know, out of a addiction, that's amazing. Thank you. I'm thank really, you. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. But these, like Julian was saying, like these kids are coming, mostly the ones that I've worked with are coming from broken homes. Like their parents are on drugs. So they don't really have a straight path to, or somebody telling them, like giving them a, a slap on the back of their hand, like, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, or this is not what, you know, we want for you. So like they're hanging out with the wrong crowds and maybe they're, you know, gang affiliated or they're just, doing really dumb things that's ending up them up in like legal crimes right charlie you ever used to gangbang or what <laughs> no <laughs> no I, I i didn't never gangbang but uh going into prison you know going into uh you have to they have to affiliate with you with somebody right and so uh i did uh stay with i always always say i i did uh i'm just with with the whites you know but i never Got got jumped in. I was never a part of a gang, but you know what I mean. But as far as CDC and the county of Kern and or they consider that a gang, right? right. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. So I'm I'm curious to you know to ask everyone like um, Nicole. So what is it that you do in your life, and why did you decide to agree to be on Desigmatized Podcast? And you know, just how how are substances incorporated in your life outside of your work? Yeah, definitely. So growing up, I, I have three, I am the youngest of three siblings. And growing up, I was seeing my brother, he had a very severe quad accident, which led him to very severe mental health issues. And at this point, mental health wasn't really talked about. This was over 10 years ago. And so his outlook was to go and do drugs um, his drug of choice now is methamphetamine as well. Um, but I was seeing him, you know, do meth in the car. I was in the car with him and I was, I was young. I was maybe like seven, eight years old when I was first looking at him and I didn't know what was going on. I was just like, Oh, my brother's taking me to the store. Like this is normal. And it kind of just struck me as I was growing up and getting older and my parents ended up splitting up. So every time I would see my brother, he was always getting worse and worse so as time went on he was just very destructive destroying things in the house and going in and out of rehab and at this point he's not to this day he is in a rehabilitation center but I believe he's not ready to give up those substances because he doesn't want to do it on his own it's kind of been us the family just forcing him I would say in a sense of trying to get him to get out of this lifestyle and you know like you just why don't you want this for yourself and he's not at that point yet so he's pushing 40 I'm glad to say he doesn't have any kids though because I would feel like that would just be a burden on us and the family um thankfully he hasn't had any serious criminal history he's just stuck in the substances Uh, can I say something absolutely so you say that right and um I remember I, my grandparents, my, my grandma, she, uh, she's always been a, uh, 
behind me. She never gave up on me. Um, even when the re- when everybody else is giving up on me, she was always there. But uh, I remember there was a time when this, all this started, and uh, before I got clean, there was like a little intervention, right, she, with her and some community supporters. I'm gonna say law enforcement. You know, uh, they seen something in me that I I lost. You know, because I hadn't always like been in, in like that, you know? And so, uh, I remember one time I told her, uh, you, you can take the, you can take the intervention, intervention and shove up your butt. You know, that's what I told my grandma, right? And, um, you but they cuss continue, huh? You could cuss I her. I know, but I don't want to discuss gotcha. my grandma, right. you know? <laughs> but, uh, I'm kind of, I shame, I'm ashamed of that. that About that, that moment. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Moment, yeah. And so, uh, but they continued to love on me. They didn't, they didn't enable me. They didn't enable me, but they, they the support, support was there if I wanted it, right? And so I say just continue to support and just continue to love on them. Don't enable it, right? But uh, I believe that he'll come around. I feel like I'm glad you brought that up, enabling, because me and my sister, we've kind of been our rock, like telling our dad, like, you're enabling him, you're enabling him, because, you know, he'll get caught up, he'll, like, um, I think one time he was, he went into jail like on my birthday. I don't even remember what it was for. It was like running a red light or something. Um, and he was in jail. And then my mom was just like, just leave him in there. Just leave him in there. Let him sit, let him ponder. Like you don't have to just go run and take him out as soon as you can. But there goes my dad enabling him in a sense that like, Oh, this is my son. You know, I have to show him that I love him. And it's like, every time my brother calls, my dad's like, okay, I'm coming over. Whether it's like he's bringing food over, he's bringing, you know, sodas, cigarettes, and money. And it's like every week, money, money, money. So it's kind of, I'm having a hard time with him and getting him to understand that, like, you are enabling him in a sense, but you need to show him support as well. Yeah. Which it kind of sounds like, you know, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Julian, but it kind of sounds like Nicole does do that with, you know, she's able to go ahead and show support without you know, being able to say like, Hey, you know, I'm going to go ahead and take you somewhere where you could go ahead and get high. Um, and I'm, and I'm assuming that that's like a, that's a way of, you know, preventing someone from enabling. Is that fair? What do you mean exactly? Yeah. Cause it seems like there's, there's support from Nicole mm-hmm. and, and her family. The dad is, goes over and says, Hey, like, you know, I'm going to go ahead and pick you up and I'm going to go ahead and, and take care of you at this moment. But it sounds like Nicole is taking care of her from a distance. Versus, you know, the dad that's like immediately there the moment that he says, hey, I need something. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I would definitely agree to that. Yeah. And Charlie, it just seems like your family also did that, right? Like they weren't, they didn't say, hey, like, I'm not going to go ahead and give you the substances that you need to go ahead and get high, but we're here for you when you're ready for that. Yeah, they did that. Uh, my grandpa would even like, man, I would see the disgusted look in his face, right? And um, and sometimes I'd be hungry and he'd tell my grandma He's a grown man. He should be in his own food. Right. You know? and, uh, and he was exactly, exactly right. I'm, I was a grown man. I should be fending my, for my own food. But I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be. Uh, my grandparents and no other adults should be supporting me but me. Right. But that's but at the time I wasn't looking at it. But it, but when they did that, it, it made me think, think like that. It made me think, yeah, like I'm a grown man. Why? 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 Why am I relying on my grandparents? Why am I relying on my elderly uh, grandparents to come pick me up why am i relying on that I'm it's a man i'm capable of working i'm capable of doing things it sounds like you were asking yourself questions you yeah. know but not being able to go ahead and figure out how to yeah. how to answer those questions independently yeah 
but I'm sure that must have been painful to not have that support of your family. Oh yeah, it was painful. It was painful. I was I was angry. I was very angry, but uh, was angry with it really. Right. Really angry with myself. It, it's hard to yeah. redirect that. Is yeah. that something that you guys preach, Julian? Like you know, to to redirect that anger or whatever feelings that you have to to yourself, or you know, how do you, how do you at you know at a sober living facility and mental health center help someone that is dealing with addiction? One of the main things I try to encourage uh, in my practice, as far as my own practice and therapy, when I see counselors and when I provide supervision to my my team is uh, establish that unconditional positive regard. You know, accept the person for who they are, not for what they've done. Because uh, we don't know how much pain and trauma they've been through. So it's very important to establish that that rapport and letting that person know, hey, I'm here to listen to you. And then from there, just basically everything prompts it's prompting the person to start developing that developing that self empowerment that self motivation that self of efficacy uh in order to uh implement some of the more uh intense therapeutic interventions right so it, it really focuses on targeting the the core of their motivation right because being able to go into a deep therapeutic relationship, that's going to take a while. Like yes. someone from the streets that's, you know, that's high at that moment, you know, they're not going to go ahead and, and give you their all at that moment. And, and Fuck it's no. Yeah. They're looking, they're looking for a quick buck to get, you know, what they want. Their needs met. They need their needs met at that moment. What does that mean? Like what, what are some of the needs that need to be met or like that you hear from the people that you provide services to? Yeah. Like, I mean, a lot of them talk about that itch, that itch that they need to get high because they miss that feeling, you know, that high brings them to this euphoric state and they're finally like at peace with themselves and, you know, they're with you, but they're not mentally really there in, in the space that, you know, whatever's going on. And so, you know, when the high dies down, they just want it again. So they'll just use again, use again, use again. And like you said, with panhandling earlier, like those people, most of them, I would say, suggest are, you know, going to use the money to use. But honestly, we don't really know that. But in the sense that, you know, once that itch has been made, it's just like a cycle. Right. So talking about the money and the homeless and um, so I, I just working with the homeless I would suggest not giving them money because there are source services out there and resources out resources out there that they can go get the food, they can go the help. And so when you're giving them money, you are enabling them to go to uh, to step away from those services. Let's, let's say, sometimes you got to grab somebody by the hand and take them to the next level. Right, and that may be the ne- that may be the next level with them is not enabling them. And that's fair to say. I think that there's, you know, just kind of going into this conversation that there's some aspects where there are people do not choose homelessness. That comes from mental health. That comes from substance abuse. And then there's so many people that and again, I'm going to go ahead and ask some very ignorant questions and I'm going to make some very ignorant comments more for the purpose of being able to connect with the audience that I'm talking to. Right. Because these are some common questions that people have and common statements. But that's a very ignorant thought of people. Um, in my subjective opinion, to say, hey, this person chose homelessness. No, they didn't. No. They, they have mental health problems. They have addiction problems. That may be hereditary. It may be something that is genetic. Mm-hmm. 
it may be something that you know we you know that we were born with and then it just takes some slight substance that is going to go ahead and get our brain chemistry to go ahead and fixate on this addiction um you know and and talking about addiction like that's one of the reasons why i don't play fantasy football because i get into this addiction and like people laugh about it yeah like it's crazy i people laugh about it but i dominate in fantasy football (laughs) i went out of my three years um i lost my first year and after that loss i was so like you had to redeem yourself yeah so i listen to podcasts i just did research above and beyond i would watch saturday college football and it was an addiction for me so much so that it prevented me from being able to focus on work because i was like monday morning i gotta get those trades in and and it's crazy like addiction just doesn't have to be substances like for me it's like i'm maybe one of the reasons why i don't go to vegas because i'm like i don't know what the hell is gonna happen if i like if i get into this losing mentality and then i just have to win like, yeah, there's no way. Yeah. But, you know, when it comes down to, again, just kind of going back to choosing this, there's all these things, there's all these factors that go into, you know, someone that is panhandling, that is homeless. They don't choose that. Um, but it's good to know that it may not be the best idea because the reality is you're right. There are all these services, you know, the, the services that, uh, that you guys work in, uh, flood ministries. Uh, and again, this is on a local level. But there are so many um, agencies that are mental health and substance use recovery services that focus on homeless assistance. Um, you know, there's you, you go anywhere and there's a two one one, which is like a resource, you know, outlet. So again, there's there's a lot out there. Um, overall, but is your brother doing well for the most part? No, I would love to say yes. Um, so I have a tattoo on my shoulder, and it is of my two grandparents that passed away. Um, more recently my grandmother passed away of cancer and when I first got it he was over at my dad's house I showed him and I was like hey look at my tattoo like look what I got and he was like he was so high you can tell he was so high he was just stumbling on his words he couldn't even really walk straight and he was like who's that and to me it kind of just struck me back and I was just like what do you mean who's that like that's grandma and grandpa and so sometimes I'll see him and he's just distraught. He's not in his own right mind. And then sometimes I'll see him and he's doing good. And when I know he's doing good, it's because he's a little bit fat. So he's not all like, you know, sucked up. So when I see him fat and I'm like, hey, do you want to go get something to eat? Like, I know you like Chinese food. Let's go. And um, more recently I've seen him and he's just, it's his way or no way. You know, and I, I can't argue with him because it's, I'll never win. So it's really hard to get him out of this current funk that he's in. Yeah. Can, so let's go back to the, like the homeless. And so you're talking about how the trauma and all that, like, uh, so people can say, Oh, why are they homeless and all that? But you, you can, once you think about it, it's like, that is somebody's dad, somebody's son, somebody's oh, mom, yeah. that's somebody's family, like your brother, like you can hear the, uh, the stress in her voice when she talks about it. Absolutely. And, and, and so that's how the other family members are thinking about their, about their, their, uh, their, 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 their family members that, that's homeless or on the street and addiction, mental illness, you know? And so I think the perception that people need to stop, stop and think about is and that is somebody's mom. That is somebody's dad. Somebody's missing them. Right. Somebody's praying for them right now. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's see. What I mean, someone that's kind of dealing with their demons in that, yeah. in that aspect, right. You know, or whatever you want to call it, you know, their addictions, their, you know, whatever, you know, insert adverb at this point. Um, 
And I feel like in Bakersfield right now, the homelessness population has just drastically increased. Like, I know some homeless um, men and women that they talk about the Chester Bridge, which is right downtown and it's like that circle yeah Mm -hmm. the circle um and that's where they go and they're like where is this this is like our hangout spot and i've heard that before and it's just like to me it's just like oh i didn't know that was the spot to go but it's like they have nowhere else that's their own community yeah they are their own community yeah exactly um julian do you have any outside of the professional experience that you have you know for me it's like I think us as social workers and as, you know, as individuals that go into into counseling of some sort, we have this, you know, and I, I'm still trying to figure out mine, like, what's our reason for, for going into this field, right? For me, it's just I, like, there's no hidden agenda outside of me wanting to give back. And for me, this is why I created this podcast platform, because it's like, this is my way of being able to go ahead and give back in some way, shape, or form. You know, do you, you know, being able to get into this very specific field, do you have family members that that deal with addictions or that suffer through that? Um, so actually my dad and his brother, uh, I think his younger brother were, uh, alcoholics. Um, unfortunately I didn't really get to know my dad that much. He passed away when I was 11. So that's actually what led my passion to go into a field where I could help others, especially those who are, uh, in their early years, teenagers, basically, um, just, from the experience of needing some type of mentoring from a male figure, uh, so yeah, there 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 is some some history of substance use in my family, but not to to the extreme as meth, heroin, or things like that. It was, it was more alcohol. But like I said, in my experience, uh, I really get really I don't really see my dad drink when um, as far as I could remember. So. It was something that was normal for you in your life. Mm, I mean, as far as I can remember, he never really drank around me. So, but that was the, the norm. That was the norm, right? That it wasn't like it wasn't really involved in your life. And oh, from, yes. from that, gotcha. Yeah, it wasn't. And what about extended family? No, nothing like that. Because for me, it's like my extended family. That's all it was, and uh, and my mom did a really good job at, at kind of keeping us away from that. Um, but we we still saw it, you know, and to the point where it's like a lot of people are. You know, there's some there's some individuals that are dealing with other like physical illnesses, um, and it and it does correlate, right? Your physical illness, your mental illness, as well as the substances that you put inside your body that are foreign to to what your body is so used to. Um, so my uncles and you know they 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 deal they definitely deal with uh, substances, um, but was that something that was in your life? Not a, not that much. Uh, I would say most of my family within those normal society or acceptable society norms of drinking. Um, I did know some cousins who who would smoke weed, but that's as much as uh, substances were involved with my family. Then again, I wasn't that close to my cousins or uncles as much as I am to my immediate family, like my sisters. For sure. Before we get into the next segment, uh, Charlie, what was your substance of choice? So it started out as alcohol, and um, I was just, I was young. 18 and but I was empty I was, had a bad childhood childhood trauma but at the time I didn't think didn't know what it was uh mental illnesses and depression when I was younger wasn't as prevalent and talked about now as uh, talked about like it is now um yeah. it was actually I thought about it as like being weak or weak-minded me and myself you know and so uh is I was self-medicating with alcohol and I thought that was I mean 
I didn't know it was self-medicating, but I just knew it was taking the feeling way and I was having fun and, and let's just go with the party, right? Right. And so, um, but then uh, I started taking, it started taking control of my life. I started losing jobs, uh, DUIs, until finally, like, um, I got, I, like, I thought my life was actually, like, rock bottom because I was like, man, I don't have a job now. I'm sleeping, I'm sleeping on a couch. And this is, I owned a house at 19. Like, what am I doing? Like, I now sleep on a couch, right? But all because of alcohol. But and, uh, then I, meth, I found meth. And uh, because of my cousin, you know, family members. And um, I tried it. And, man, my life really hit rock bottom after that, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't too long after that. I was uh, in prison. And uh, just continued that cycle until, until recently, until uh, I got out in 2020. You know? Gotcha. Thanks for sharing, man. Oh. How do you feel now that you got out and you kind of came into like a COVID world? So I was I was in and out, so I wasn't just stuck. I wasn't just locked up. But so in 2019, December 31st, 2019, um, <clears throat> I had gotten arrested, and uh, I kind of knew in my heart I was going to get arrested. You know, Cause I knew, I just felt like something. I knew I wasn't doing right, and. Uh, I told my grandma to come down to the bank, and she, I, I got arrested for her for our case. And I, she's like, why do I need to be out here? I was like, because, you know, this check is mine, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, I'm sick. I'm going to go. I was like, all right. So I said, here, take everything. I gave her everything, right? And um, and uh, the, the sheriff showed up. I said, hey, I, they took my check. I want my check back, the bank, right? They said, oh, and the sheriff's like, how did you get the check, Vanderbilt? And I was like, oh, I'm selling stuff online, right? And they said, uh so they go in and they're doing their little their little uh, research and they're not believing my story, right? And so, um, but anyways, is I remember Debbie Evans and I had probably only met him like one other time, but he puts me in the back of the cop car and he says, "You know, what I think your problem is Charlie." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "I think your thoughts are 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 unorganized." And it's like a light bulb went up in my head. It's like all the things I I've been waiting for, right? I knew I was there. It's like something went off in my head, and I was like, I just laughed, and I wasn't laughing at him, but I was like, yeah, I was like, uh, you're right, my life, I was like, my life is unorganized. So that was your turning that point. Was my turning point, right? This is simple words like that. That's why I'm saying I believe your brother will come out of it. Just continue. I hope continue so. That love. You know what I mean? Positive affirmations, you know, but don't, but my, my biggest suggestion is, uh, yeah, just continue to love on him, but don't enable him. You know, it's just simple words like that. That's all it took, but you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Oh, absolutely, man. Um, so we're going to go ahead and continue to the next segment. Um, I, before I, I've asked Julian to do something, um, but we'll, we'll get to that. There, I found an article, um, and this comes from the National Institute of Drug um, Abuse. Um, so there are studies that show that about 40 to 60% of individuals relapse within 30 days of leaving an inpatient facility, um, which, it, which, considers a, which is considered a drug and alcohol treatment center. And up to 85% of relapse happen within the first year. So I want to talk about 10 common reasons for addiction relapse. So the first one is, um, so I'll just go ahead and read them. So one is withdrawal. Two is mental health. Three is people. Uh, four is places. Five is things. Six is poor self-care. Seven is relationship and intimacy. Eight is pride and overconfidence. Nine is boredom and isolation. And 10 is uncomfortable emotions. So those are some common, you know, and this comes from the National Institute of uh, of Drug Abuse. 
And these are some 10 common reasons as to why people relapse. So as I read that list, and I'll, and I'll go to you first, Charlie, um, what are some things that you think about? And also, I'm kind of curious, you know, how many times did you relapse while you were in recovery? So uh, when I first took recovery series, when I got out in 2020, I relapsed twice. And now I'm 25th of April. Uh, I'll be, I'll be uh, 13 months clean of all my altering substances, no steroids, no alcohol, no meth, no, no prescription medication, nothing. Not even a tylenol? Tylenol, yes. I tylenol. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Got you. Cause there, but there are some people that, that right. choose to go right. without anti, without any sort of uh, like so, tannin or anything like that, right? So I, I, I've, I've, that, I'm worried. I'm, 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 I try to stay away from that, to be honest with you. Um, but I did have some back problems, but I take very limb, like one. Yeah, but I do stay away from it, and I, I don't try, uh, I don't try to, to anything that I feel like is medication or drug. If I, I try to steer clear of this because I don't, I trust myself. I just don't. I try to. I, I look at. I look at. I try to look at drugs and medication as a as something like that took control of my life and stirred my life for so long. I don't want to let it back in. Right, and so. Yeah, but um, two of those topics, like I can, I like to address on. Like one of them uh, was people, right? One of the people, um, I literally like. So one of the things that led to my relapse was me going back out to uh, East Kern, where I'm from, and hanging out with, just, like, going back out there and and hang, leaving the program for the weekend and going out and hanging out with people that I was that I was getting high with, right? Thinking that I'm over out there th- showing off, acting like I'm clean, but really I was getting high with them, thinking I'm. I mean, and so I. Came to, it came to a point where like I literally had to cut everybody off, and that's family. Period. I cut everybody off, and um, then another thing is that you you wouldn't think about it, but it was uh sex, sex, because uh when you're, when you're not out like I'm not used to having sober sex, I'm used to having uh alcohol infested, drug infested sex where it's go all night, all night, all night, right? And, and so like sober sex was a little different, you know. Uh, I had to work on uh. <laughs> on like you know <laughs> not not letting it out so soon and, right. and all these things you know just keep it real I yeah mean, no for sure and so uh yeah so it's like that that was one of the things that, that i had to struggle with at first you know yeah no for sure yeah because yeah, it goes from being a full-on porn until like uh, yeah. actually the the real life aspect of being intimate versus actually having sex yeah intimate, yeah. yeah yeah so no i have I, I it's definitely understandable so i mean it, it's you know it, it's not really, you know, crazy to think about that people are triggers, right? You know, we kind of hear that on, on a daily basis. You know, we, we hear that, you know, there's there's family members that will go ahead and, and you know, like even your own cousins. And, you know, for me, like I, I lived that as well. Like, there, you know, I, I decided to go ahead and stay away from family. That was a personal choice. Um, and I was able to go ahead and hang out with some of them. And it's just like that was all that was done. And, I'm, and I felt like the black sheep of the family. Because it's like I'm I'm not gonna act like I'm fucking a saint here because I'm not like I I I love to drink not to the extent where I I hate getting drunk but I do love to drink I'm I'm a craft beer guy so like you take me to a brewery and I'm the happiest guy in the world right but you know it it wasn't to the point where where I was with this family it's just like everyone's just trash and I'm just like yeah, I I I can't do this at all yeah. I'm, I'm I'm not with you guys and um and it was weird you know just just being in that in that environment um yeah so yeah and then there's um and i hear it i don't i don't don't know about you guys maybe julian and nicole could answer this 
the boredom and isolation part of it, you know, and, and there's also the pride and overconfidence aspect of, of the 10 reasons. Like I hear that even from my clients that are dealing with mental health, it's just like, oh yeah, like I, you know, I'm sober now by choice, but if I wanted to drink, I could go ahead and drink and it's not going to be a big deal. Like I could control it. Do you guys hear that? We hear that a lot. Like I can control it. I can just, you know, I can be clean and sober for six months and then go out, but I'm going to smoke a blunt, you know, whenever I want to, maybe my probation officer is going to catch me. Maybe they're not. And I think in their head, they're just so fixated on, yeah, I can control it. Like you're saying, but they don't understand that they have an addiction or they have a problem. And that's one of the big red flags and the one of the concerns that, you know, we have and we're trying to fix, but they're so fixated on, yeah, I'll be clean until like I, you know, I have the opportunity to have that option to have it again, to, you know, smoke a blunt or hang out with my friends. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's actually very interesting when uh, talking about these topics is undoubtedly environmental factors are a main trigger for many uh, um for many people who are using substances, um, that's because their environment is exposing them to that. Especially with the the youth that we deal with, they're almost on a daily basis exposed to it, uh, or they know exactly where to get it from. It's down the street, it's that house right there in the corner. Uh, worst case scenarios, the parents have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tends to be another issue. Um, one of the things that was very interesting, um, maybe a year ago or yeah a little bit after covid we started seeing a lot of recidivism and we saw a lot of youth coming back and they were pretty heavy on on their substance uh they yeah they were pretty heavy on using other substances from the first time that they were committed to to um to the program and it was because they had excessive amount of time because of school school were closed down they were bored. They did not want to do any of the computer stuff. So what they do in the free time when I hang out with the homies, got some drugs, and things just escalated from there. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to hear that because, you know, there's, you know, there's that um, digital learning platform that, that was created because of uh, COVID. For me, it was, you know, that was a choice that I made when I did my graduate school program. I, I did it online. I did it through Zoom. I did it, you know, I was doing Zoom before it was even cool. But, you know, with that said, it's like there are people, you know, that was a choice by, you know, by me. And there's so many, even of our frat bros that that say, hey, you know, I'm going to go ahead and wait it out. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wait out for, for me to go ahead and go back to school because I, I work better learning in person versus being able to, you know, versus not, you know, versus doing the digital. And then with these kids, it wasn't a choice. It was something that was forced upon them because of this is what we have to do to, you know, to social distance. And I'm sure that that caused a whirlwind of emotion uh, for those individuals. But before I allow you to answer that question, before I forget, use this really big word that I learned in grad, only in grad school, recidivism. So recidivism is literally coming back, you know, going back into jail or going back into um, and that. And I only learned that because of grad school. So I just wanted to address that. So but but yeah, what do you, what do you think whenever it comes down to um, to going you know, those individuals, those kids that had to go into digital learning. Man, it's an interesting topic to consider just for the fact that most of the youth I deal with uh, tend to have some type of learning disability. Uh, most of them, well, I wouldn't say most of them, but uh, a high percentage of them um, 
have difficulties either in writing, reading, math, or just simply not express knowing how to express themselves about their emotions, their you know what's going on or what they're thinking exactly towards the towards conflicts or how to go about you know letting others know what they want or need. Yeah. So those those are very complicated situations and and that tends to just only add more more stress to them yeah. which is more fuel for them to just kind of go out and seek substances because it's an escape an escape for reality yeah and i'm assuming you heard that nicole pretty often right like these kids that were, they they openly admit to you like hey i'm just getting high because i'm bored from you know from dealing with you know the the digital school yeah too and i feel like you guys brought up a great point earlier talking about parents a lot of these kids that are coming in, they, their parents know they're doing drugs and they're getting high and they're okay with it. It's like, oh, okay, well, you could smoke weed just because it's legal. But it's like, okay, but if it's meth or fentanyl or anything else, like it's going to be a problem. Like I, at that aspect, I really don't understand because it's like if you're saying yes to one thing, of course, you know, they're going to try other things because they feel like it's okay. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I, I do want to go ahead and jump ahead into the next aspect because there's a couple more things that we want to do. Um, so I brought up there's four main categories when it comes down to substances. There's your stimulants, there are your depressants, there's the opiate-related painkillers, and then there's the hallucinogens for the most part. There's plenty more, um, but those are the four most common. So I asked Julian to go ahead and talk to me about, um, you know, what do, you know, to educate individuals that are listening what is a stimulant? You know, what are some examples of stimulants and what are some of the effects that they do? So stimulant, I guess the simplest way to put it, and this is where meth is considered a stimulant, is it gives you a burst of energy. Uh, it's just something where it keeps you up and energized um, and just keeps go- keeps you going throughout the day. Um, a lot of the youth who have... Uh, told me about their meth use is that they've gone days well asleep. I don't know if Charlie, that's been your experience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's some of them use it just for for the thrill of staying up, and um, some of them do hustle on uh, on the side. But a lot of it is just because of the energy that it provides. Right. What are some uh, some examples of, so there's meth, cocaine, and then what are some other, you know, some other stimulants? Well, you could actually start considering some even prescription medication like Adderall. Um, those are things that even college students tend to abuse it, you right. know, prep for, for the test. <laughs> I definitely tried that. It did work. Yeah. That and two, like another one is fentermine. It's, it's actually like a weight loss drug, but... Um, it's prescribed but I would take like half a pill and I was like just up alert like after Adderall like had ran its course and it was just like physically draining I tried this and I wouldn't eat I was so grouchy all the time and then but I was like getting all my work done so I was like oh you know my doctor prescribed it so it's fine but then it's like you're realizing how you're treating your family because you're not eating and you're so grouchy and you're you know doing all these bad things and then you're weaning yourself off and you're like, holy shit, I was actually a bad person, but at least I was doing my work. Right, for sure. And these stimulants, these are considered uppers, right? Yes. 
and these uppers you you know you feel that burst of energy exactly what you guys said and you know for my personal not personal experience but from i've been what i've been able to go ahead and and learn and again full disclosure i haven't even gotten high the worst that i've done is just drink but whenever it comes down to it when when i hear clients tell me about this is that they're up for two to three days and then they come down really hard where they sleep for about two to three days yeah. And a lot of them, they just, you know, they urinate themselves during their sleep because they they don't even have the energy to go ahead and get up. Yeah. Okay. Next category is depressants. Tell us a little bit about depressants. So the depressants are pretty, uh, what's the easiest way to explain them? It's just that substance, that substance that gives you that, that relaxing feeling. And, you know, you have cannabis, uh, you have Xanax. Um, you have alcohol. Um, I mean the list goes on. I don't can name that many on top of yeah. my head. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, but yeah, they're they're pretty common. Uh, there's some substances that are pretty common that tend to give those uh, the youth at least for the reports I get. Uh, the youth tend to use it to just go to sleep or just feel relaxed. Especially when they're stressed out, that's what they tend to rely on to cope with that stress. Um, so that's. That's primarily why many youth tend to rely on cannabis because it's it's a depressant. No, sorry, go ahead. So when I was incarcerated, um, they used to take the trimadol, and they uh, take like save them like five at a time, and they would and they take them all at once, and uh, then they get the nods like heroin. They call them the trimadots. The trimadots. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a, uh, even like medication that's actually prescribed, like trazodone. Um, that could be, uh, if I remember correctly, it's also considered a depressant. Uh, that is one of the concerns uh, that sometimes we deal with is ensuring that when the youth are taking that type of medication that they actually take it because if they don't take it and they crush it, they could snort it and it's, it's a high. Right. And it actually could be... Uh, um, a deadly dose that 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 could um that could happen as a result of that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, that what you guys are talking about those are the next category, which is the opium related painkillers uh, versus the the actual depressants. The the depressant, and again, just kind of going back to you know, so so people do understand a stimulant is an upper, a depressant is a downer, and alcohol is one of the more common one. It's one of the more common downers. You know, we you know we as a society we associate. Uh, alcohol is a really good time as you know as we're trying to have fun and we're you know this is what gets us lively we take shots everyone's having fun but you know what people really don't take into consideration is that it's actually a depressant and it gets you really really tired um and that's why you know a lot of uh, duis do exist because of the fact that people drive they feel tired they feel exhausted they're you know they're not in their right senses and then they end up getting into uh you know other uh accidents you know some uh vehicle accidents because of that depressant feeling that just it just brings you down in all aspects of you know within your body the opium related painkillers so heroin is considered one of them right yes what are some other examples of opium related related painkillers um fentanyl oxycodone uh, um, morphine morphine yeah well there's another one on top of i don't know no yeah if i don't know that i forgot what it's called exactly um, I don't know exactly the name, but it's supposed to be much stronger than than heroin and fentanyl. Um, I think it's fertinol, fertinol, fertinol. 
I think it's something like that. I don't remember the exact name. Um, what other ones are there? But, oh, but overall, like the psychotropic medications would also be kind of within that category, right? You're the those uh, the antidepressants, the SSRIs, those would be considered uh, more opium related painkillers, in in a sense, right? Yeah, in a way, they will be more. Yeah, definitely fall in that category. Um, can't really think of any on top of my head. That it's all right. <laughs> Ultimately, it's you know those are some common ones that everyday you know the everyday folk do have you know, in some way, shape, or form, right? The last category, you know, out of the, out of the four, and again, there's so many, and and everyone could go ahead and do their own research. Um, I highly encourage everyone to go ahead and speak to a professional about this versus you know doing your own Google research because that will lead you into a rabbit hole of of you know mystery. But the last category is the hallucinogens. So, what are some examples of hallucinogens? So you got LSD, uh, also known as acid. You got shrooms. Um, these are the type of substances that tend to distort your some of your sensations, such as what you see, what you feel, even your mood is distorted, where uh, you might feel more happy in the moment. Um, so some those some uh, the basic uh, and most common substances used. Right. Yeah. So these are the hallucinogens. Those are the ones that are you know that everyone's kind of raving of towards especially like in raves like when you go to to a lot of the festivals i'm assuming that uh, ecstasy ecstasy yeah. yeah there's a lot of uh you know they they get a, it, the colors that are happening at these raves they, while taking a hallucinogen it just really affects them and and it and it creates uh a lot of uh euphoria yeah you got also pcp that one just came on top of my head right now yeah and it's uh, essentially it creates a it, it releases a lot of uh, dopamine and serotonin when when taking those, right? Uh, for the most part, yes. Uh, obviously, all the substances are going to influence those chemicals. Uh, so you have the ones maybe like the stimulants and the hallucinogens that tend to release more dopamine. Uh, why, that's why people feel so good when they're using the substance. Um, it's The analogy I always use is... Um, it's like hearing music when you have it on blast it's an hour sometime you're having a blast having the time of your life and when you lower it down that's when you're experiencing those withdrawals and that's where um, people tend to not enjoy so what they do they go back to the substance to get that right yeah that's pretty fair with any substance right yeah, yeah I feel like the one of the main ones um, that I've seen and I've dealt with is like the they like when you're using you feel like something's on your skin or there's something's under your skin or your gear and that's where the picking comes into play. So I don't know if you've dealt with that, Charlie. I didn't never, luckily I never dealt with that. Um, so I think that would come with like heroin and. and but I know even people that were on meth, like they would stay in there and they pick, pick, pick. And I'll be honest with you, when I couldn't be around people like that, they and I was like, actually, make them get out of my car. I was like, oh, don't be in there picking. I can't do that. You yeah, know, sure. I'm looking to have a good time. I'm not looking watching you pick your face. But yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. So the one of the last segments that I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to go ahead and ask some very mindless questions that I feel. 
um, you know, and they're mindless intentionally because my goal is to have a conversation um, that is relatable to someone that has never dealt with or is currently dealing uh, with someone with uh, substance use uh, in some way, shape, or form and may be afraid to ask uh, these questions. So, and again, this whoever wants to go ahead and answer these. Uh, can addiction be treated? Yes. 100%. I'm living proof. You're living proof, yeah. right? Yeah. That's exactly why I'm this field. People like Charlie motivate me because... There is hope. There is hope that things could be better for those people who are um, considered addicts. But you got to put in work. It, it, it doesn't come in. E- it doesn't come easy. It, yeah. it, yes. You got to put work in. <laughs> Definitely. And uh, I, I, I tell people like, uh, change, it, change is not easy because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Yeah. But it's not. So you exactly. got to put in work, and, and you can't be lazy about it. For sure. Sometimes, sometimes you got to sit on your feelings and not want to go use or self-medicate and because you went through a breakup or some i mean what something happened you got to sit on those feelings you got to learn how to deal with them yeah you know? for sure and uh don't 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 take the easy way out and, and, and go uh self-medicate yeah for sure yeah and breakups are you know it's it's a reason to to go ahead and get high and get drunk right you know it's easy to go ahead and get some ice cream a bottle of wine and yeah. just loathe in, in that you know in that pain um, is addiction curable? Yes and no. I feel like that's a that's a tough question to debunk because, yeah, like you said, Charlie, like you are living proof, but you didn't get here because there was a straight path. Like you had to really work to get to where you are right now. Yeah. Like you just got out of prison in 2020, and that was like last week. <laughs> so, like, I give you kudos because that's awesome. Thank You're you. doing great. Go ahead. I don't think it's uh, to me if, you, if something's cured, it's not coming back, right? And so uh, I don't think it's it's cured. I think it's treatable. So so and, and this is something that like you know I actually intentionally didn't do on this episode. Um, I have a bunch of bottles, you know, in in my house, and um, and the, those are gifts, you know, because I just I normally just don't drink. Um, and I was just going to go ahead and offer you guys. Um, alcohol but when like if i were to let let, obviously i'm not going to offer you alcohol right i'm going to offer you water right but in every in every other episode i've asked my guests do you guys want a beer do you guys want you know do you guys want a drink um does that trigger you in any sort of sense like if i ask people around you no and um and i build up i build i build up a tolerance to it um so i go to a lot of community events and um and when i first started going to the community events uh I, well, I was just say I, I want to be a community leader, and so I, I ch- started changing my focus of who I was hanging out with. And so, uh, like you know, you hear that you hear that uh, saying: if you want to be an alcoholic, you're gonna hang out with alcoholics or hang out at the bar. If you want to be a, a, a community leader or, or be a millionaire, that's who you're gonna hang out with. So that's what I did. So, uh, no, no, doing that, I also have to go to community events and network and learn, and know people, right? And so, uh, there's alcohol there, right? But I let the, I let everybody know from the very get that uh, I'm in recovery, and um, and a couple of times I I wouldn't go to a couple of community events because I knew that there, how much alcohol was going to be there. But now that I've gotten stronger at it, I don't I don't I don't ever get triggered. There was one time I was in Vegas and I was walking down the uh, strip with uh, my girlfriend Michelle, and uh, I seen I seen uh, this girl walking with you know the big old uh, margarita. It was uh, like fat. Big tu- is it Fat Tuesday? Fat Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesdays. I don't know, the big old long Big Tuesday. I'm like, dang, that is hot outside. I'm like, dang, that looks good. 
But then uh, she's like, no, it does. I said, I, I said, yeah, it does. But I know that if I take that drink, that uh, we wouldn't be having these memories. I won't be walking down this trip with you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And a major shout out to your, you know, to your significant other that is being able to, you know, to be that support that yeah, is she, able to go ahead and you're able to have these open conversations with and, and let her know your honest feelings. Yeah. Because, yeah, like you said, right, and, you know, for you, um, addiction may not be curable, but it is treatable. Yeah. And she's very supportive. I yeah. Know. She's very, very supportive. Awesome. She's the best thing to come in my life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I have to agree with Charlie. It's not curable. Definitely is manageable. Um, and this comes down to what we in this field consider uh, the separated between risk factors and and protective factor factors uh, you know the risk factors being poor uh, poor support from family um, just the neighborhoods the stress the stressors or bad coping skills or strategies that the person might have um, maybe lack of education as far as their understanding of those substances or what to do when they need assistance. So those are risk factors that influence um, people to uh, go back into um, their substance use. And then you have protective factors, which is basically the opposite. You know, if you have a good support system, if you have that knowledge, if you build that knowledge to, you know, to get that motivation to to make some changes, if you get you know, a stable job or, you know, just someone that is providing that type of support. Gotcha. Is it possible for someone who's in recovery to be healthy and happy? And does that exist in a world where those around you may still be hurt? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I believe so. Um, so I, I'm taking the as still be hurt, right? As somebody who still may be in their addiction or in or Trying to come out of their addiction? Is that what you're meaning by that? It could be that, or maybe family members that are still hurt by you, by the actions that you've done, and you know, for oh. you know, for those individuals okay. that of, of what they have done in the past, and they're still you know resentful, or you know, still haven't uh, forgiven, or don't know how to forgive. You know? Yeah. Um, it's been a. I can say with me, it's been a. It's been a uh, with my son, my son Jay, and and trying to be back in his life. Uh, it's been a struggle. Uh, here recently, though, like just since last weekend, um, he's been coming around for the first time. He told he told me, uh, yeah, for the first time in a long time, he told me, "I love you," and, and stuff. So, uh, it, it it can it can happen. It, yeah. But uh, it does take time. It it it, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. But um, you got to prove you got to prove things to people. You know what I mean? And I had the. Touching my heartstrings right now because I had the perfect thing to say, but then when I brought my son, like, it's okay, uh, but yeah, um, yeah, but uh, it can happen. Yeah, yeah, sure. What What are your thoughts, Julian? Can someone who's in recovery be healthy and happy? And how does that exist in a world when there are people that may still be hurt? Hmm. I don't know exactly how to answer this question. This one is a tough one. I think it's. It's more of a situation or a case by case. Um, I want to say, yeah, I want to say though that people could be happy and um, and pretty healthy in this recovery process, especially knowing that they come a long way from where they were at. So for that itself, I think that's a big accomplishment for them. So why not be happy and uh, happy that they're healthier than they were? maybe a year ago or two years ago. 
Yeah. Can I say something? Because he's right. And so, like, being, like, I'm happy every day. I'm even on my bad days. I'm a lot happier than when I was uh, in my addiction because uh, I was self medicating. So obviously, I was I was uh, hiding for something, running for something, right? And uh, so I'm I'm happy every day. But there's, at the same time, anybody I feel is like a, a threat to my health, my mental health, my emotional health. I don't let them into my life, and that's family included. You know, um, and so I'm I'm very protective of, of how far I've come. And I'll continue to be productive. And, and, and so anybody out there that uh, you're struggling with that, because somebody's telling you, oh, well, you think you're better? You're not better. You know, you're not better. You just, uh, you're just at a different level than you were at before. Right. And you don't, you don't need to, uh, you know, you don't need to come down to somebody else's level with their, with their perception of you. You know, if they, if they care and they, and they want to be there for you, they'll come up to your level. Right, for sure. Yeah. Nicole, you're one of the people that are hurt by, by, Someone that is dealing with addiction. Yeah, I'm hurt. I mean, I'm I'm seeing my brother, and he's definitely gone through stages where, you know, he's in recovery. And that moment is great. We're like this happy family. And, like, jumping back, um, when my grandma passed away, he wasn't, he, I wouldn't say he wasn't invited, but he didn't go to the funeral. And... I'm sure that touches him in a sense when he is, you know, conscious of his mind. But that's one of the things that I know stays with him because he was at a point in his life then where he was so messed up. He, you know, we were embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to be like, oh, yeah, and my brother's a, you know, an alcoholic or he's a drug addict or I hate saying those things because I know he's so much better than that. Um, And I want better for him. But I just, I, I can't force him to get out of that lifestyle. You know, my family can't force him. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for answering that. If someone is in recovery, or if someone in recovery were to relapse, how do you get the family to understand that it's not their fault? Or am I wrong here? You know, is it the family's fault that, they're, that this individual relapses? Or, you know, what are, how, do, how, do, how do you guys answer that? No, I, um... That falls all back on the individual. Um, if I'll tell you how, from my perspective, if you relapse, it's not because you're weak-minded. It's not because you got weak. Is yeah, you had to slip up, man. Pick up, pick yourself back up, and get back on the road. You know, uh, maybe uh, you weren't working your recovery right. Maybe uh, I have a sponsor. He's a, he's a great, great sponsor. You know, but uh, I can't say that about everybody. But some people will relapse and keep going. Relapse, 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 and keep going back to the same sponsor. Well, there must be something. You got to change something up. You know, maybe you need to change your sponsor, the recovery program, program that you're working. You got to change it up. You know, uh, some some recovery programs aren't for everybody. You yeah. know, just because it worked for somebody doesn't mean it's going to work for you. You know, but so no, it falls falls directly back on the individual. How do you get the family to understand that? Um, time. You say time. But family uh, shouldn't understand that if they've already gone through all this with you and they see the progress that you have made, that they they should understand that you know, it, 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 you look how far you come and, and just continue to love on. So you're saying that there's like an unspoken implication. Yeah. Okay. So Nicole, you say time. I say time because 
as I've stated, like, you know, back and forth, relapse, recovery, relapse, and recovery. And I have forgiven in a sense of the previous times, but I'll never forget. Um, but in his mind, I know he just, he has like no recollection of like the things he's done or the things he's said. And in a sense there, I was, I'm mad at him. You know, I'm like, how could you treat me or treat our family this way? But, you know, you're so self-absorbed in your own head and you're only caring about your needs and not the needs of the family. So in a sense, like time has definitely healed those wounds, but every day there's new ones. Gotcha. Julian? I would have to say that it's definitely not the family's fault and I don't think it's so much about the individual's fault either. I think one of the important things that has to be well understand is that the impact of substances that it has on the brain is pretty uh, severe. You know, it's the subs- the the effects of the substances is just basically rewiring the brain system. So it it, it trains itself to find substance as the thing they need for survival rather than family or food or water you know there's a shift in perspective to what they truly need so it's that's where the the process is the difficult part is trying to train the train the brain back to knowing that your survival or your needs are those who you love you know obviously your self-care your your hygiene and all that so i think it's definitely not the individual's fault or the family's fault in this situation. Gotcha. All right. So I'll go ahead and ask the individual questions. Julian, how do how do behavioral therapies treat drug addictions? Um so there's cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectic dialectic behavioral therapy sorry if i don't pronounce that right but the idea of the cognitive behavioral uh, or the cbt interventions and skills is to help the individuals uh, focus on on what what is their values and belief systems Uh, most of the individuals tend to develop that belief system that again that they need the substance to survive so the cognitive behavioral therapies what is very effective is that tackles those beliefs it challenged them it challenged them it challenged them to really reconsider what what their beliefs should be like or what their values are um well i guess in another way to put it is have them uh, revive those memories or those values that they have prior to them using substances so it helps them reframe them in a sense yes reframe the yeah reframe the perspective towards towards life to their substance use and pretty much yeah gotcha thank you how how do these uh behavioral therapies help the families um as far as the families how would i, how would I describe it again it's pretty much just uh assisting them to understand how they could go about physically uh being there for them um you know, encouraging them that that provide that support. I know again, some families become distant, so it's highly encouraged for them to be more supportive. I could say, mm-hmm. 
So it's essentially like working with them to go ahead and educate them to go ahead and let them know like, hey, you know, this is th- th- there's a world of barriers. It's not just that fact that they want to go ahead and get high. It's mm-hmm. There's all these other aspects and educating the family like, hey, it's going to take, you know, time. It's going to take patience. It's going to go ahead and take them relapsing five, yeah. six, seven times. Yeah, it really, really comes down to just providing that, that education to the family, uh, especially for those who have kids dealing with the substance use gotcha nicole did behavioral therapies help your family at all no my brother in a sense has never sought out any um therapy and i mean i'm so fresh and new in this field and i feel like i shouldn't be the one trying to Rests on, hey, let's go to therapy. Let's go to family therapy. Let's figure out what's wrong with us and kind of mend that. Um, so I've definitely haven't had the opportunity to kind of explore that with my family. I have, um, excluding my brother, I have explored that with like my mom and dad and my sister to try and get them to understand you know, just how the process works in his own mind so that way we have a better understanding overall. Yeah, and how are they open towards that? Yes, it took them a really long time to get them on board, but yes. Was that like a cultural barrier? Oh, of course, yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, coming from a Hispanic household and having like that strong male figure, my dad is like, we don't need therapy, we'll just talk about it, or, or not even talk about it. It's more like, let's just yell about it, or let's just forget about it entirely and deal with it as it comes. So it's definitely a cultural aspect that you have to break down and I had to tell him so many times like this is not right this is not the right way so we need to heal ourselves before we can heal others I kind of want to add to that just so to elaborate uh, on that I think the challenges when it comes to family therapy and uh, is trying to get everybody on the same page everybody uh, again cultural differences just the age itself of of those in the family uh, that changes the belief system and the attitude towards certain things, obviously, including substance use. Um, so that makes it complicated. doesn't mean it's not imp- uh, that it's impossible. It just means that it's going to definitely take some more time and more education to ensure that, that everybody's on the, on the same path to helping the person who is struggling with the addiction. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, I think for me as a, as a therapist, I always say that I'm never going to go ahead and work harder than the individual that needs the help. I'm always going to meet the client where they're at. Um, and that's been a rule that I followed um, throughout my entire uh, profession as a therapist. And, and I try to, to do that. There may be some times where I may have to work a little bit harder, but, I, but that's to go ahead and get you to, to your baseline. And at that point, then I'll meet you exactly where you're at. But if I could go ahead and get you to go to your baseline, then at that point, there's no reason for me to work harder. I'll meet you where you're at. Um, cause it does take, there, there may be times that it just takes a little bit more push for, for some people versus others. Um, Charlie, what, what worked best for you when you finally said I'm done? Um, worked for, best for me, uh, self-reflection, self-reflection and, uh, CBT. I, I literally, uh, believe that change your mindset, you're going to change your focus. And, um, I'm not going to say that. Changing my mindset is easy. I'm not going to say I don't have negative thoughts that come through my head, right? But I know how to deal with them now. Um, I'm very confident, and I remind myself how confident I am. 
You know what I mean? Sometimes I, I uh, there's a saying that, you know, some, the grass is greener on the other side. Well, sometimes you got to water your own grass, right? You can't depend on somebody else to water it, water it for you. So, uh, and that watering begins up in your head. And that's where, it, that's where it starts. Like, you know what I mean, so I, I believe that that's where it started. Like, um, I knew I was a better person. I knew I was a better person all through all that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was times that I would drive out to, uh, I'm from the East Kern. So, uh, I would drive out to California state prison sometimes, uh, at least once a week and sit across from the prison. And I remind myself, like, you don't change your ways. You're gonna go back there for a long time, you know? And I remind myself that, you know, there was a point in your life when, uh, like you were you're taking uh taking a written test for the LA City Fire Department test and finishing the first band. You did ride alongs for the LA County Sheriff's Department, you know? Uh so you're better than this. You you mean you, you came up from sixteen years old being married to uh raising your son, um, having custody of your son at two two and a half when you two and a half years old, buying a house at nineteen, uh and, and being on a management team of, of a Fortune five hundred company, you know what I mean? So like you're better than this. Like you know, and so I just continue to reflect on those and remind myself that I'm a better person, you know. And um, it's just having that confidence within yourself. If you don't have that confidence in, confidence in, within yourself, uh, your family can, other people can, but you, I mean, it's up to you to believe that. For sure. And Charlie, has this conversation been triggering in any sort of way? Because I'm going to be honest, you know, I have... You know, it may be realistic and it may be, you know, it's, it was a concern of mine, you know, being able to talk about this and, um, you know, if it drives you to wanting to use. And, um, you know, that idea came from people who who aren't in my life, you know, it's that have said, hey, it's it's always been around me and it's hard not to use. And other people, you know, ultimately they avoid these topics entirely out of fear for their loved ones, you know, being able to relapse, you know, and with that said, um, what are your thoughts on my concerns? You know, on even me asking you like, Hey, you know, I, I didn't ask everyone else like, Hey, do you want a beer? Like, what are some of your thoughts when, when it comes to that or, and more importantly, how would you help families who have that fear, you know, talk about that direct fear, you know, to not walk on eggshells to prevent family member, you know, to prevent their family member or loved one to relapse. Well, if I, if I got the question correctly, um, I speak on it, not because I get triggered. Um, I speak on it because I want to help other people. Right. I want to, I want to bring awareness to the, to the traumas and to the things that go on and pe- and that people that are, are addicted or are in their addiction in that lifestyle or even out of that lifestyle we're good people i mean we just uh we have a disease and it literally it literally is a disease you know and so uh i don't mind speaking i love speaking on it you know um sometimes it it, it I, I start sweating i get nervous about it but it's just because i i think because i get worked up about it right and and, and so uh i love talking about it that's what i, I mean but and, and with families, I say uh, meet them where that. I mean, uh, I when I say I like, I don't allow people into my life that I feel are going to be toxic to me. That, that's my inner. I mean, I have very very small inner circle, right? And and, uh, and I make sure and they and when they come when they're and the be in my inner circle, like you don't. It's not that you have to drink, that you can't drink. It's uh, it's that. You've already said to me, like, 
if 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 this is triggering you in any way, or if I if you like feel like uh, you're gonna drink, let me know and I'll quit drinking. When they, I mean, let me know I'll quit drinking. I'll quit drinking. I mean, and so like, I I would just say like, don't bring that around them. You know what I mean? Um, let them bring that to you. I mean, don't don't force things. If you gotta force things, or you want if you gotta ask them if if you can drink around them, then you're already to me you're already a uh, toxic form. That's how I feel. Gotcha. Um, that's pretty much it for my questions. Um, is there anything that I didn't address, uh, during today's conversation that you would like to go ahead and bring up? And this goes to all of you. I think we had a very good collective conversation. I was really eager to hear Charlie's side because now you're an advocate, not only for yourself, but for others. Yeah. Yeah, And I enjoy it. I mean, it's, uh, God, uh, I'll say, uh, I'll say my higher power, right? I remember I used to be in, uh, in my prison cell and I'd hit my knees and I'd pray for, to, to deliver me from the, uh, the burdens that were, that I was carrying. And I also prayed for him to, uh, instill in me wisdom and knowledge to how to lead his people. And, um, and this is how he's, this is how he's using me. And I reached my hand for that. And so I will continue to, uh, endeavor to, uh, bring awareness to this and, and, and fight for those that, that, uh, that are struggling, you know, for sure. Anything from your end? Yeah, I think we covered a lot of good areas. You know, there are so many different things that we could talk about when it comes to substance use and mental health. Um, definitely one of the things to encourage people is to be open-minded, you know, like Charlie said, um, people who use substances are not bad people. There are people who are struggling internally, and sometimes they don't have that that way to express themselves or don't have those uh, proper pro-social skills. Um, so it's very important to be educated that uh, mental health is uh, something that should be taken serious and that those who are using substances do need support and some uh, help uh, especially when they are very quiet about it. I think when they're quiet about it, that's when they're in, in pain. Um, so it's definitely something where people should not say, oh, that's a bad person. They just threw their life away. It's like, no, they, they just have been struggling and they pretty much have not found a way out. doesn't mean it's going to end there. You know, Charlie has said it himself, there is a way out. Yeah, I mean, Charlie, and again, this is this is going to go for hopefully a national audience, right? You know, this isn't just limited to Kern County, but um, but you went from literally addiction, homelessness to being a program director or, you know, program manager for yeah. for what you're doing, you know, for for and to advocate and to be the voice of those that are dealing with the struggles that you were dealing with. You know, now you're now you're getting paid to <laughs> to to literally deal with addiction. Yeah. And, and homelessness, not in the way that one would traditionally deal with it. And you're doing a, you know, you're doing a fantastic job, man. Thank you. So I give you major kudos for what, you know, for what you've accomplished, you know, being, for being able to go ahead and deal with whatever you want to call it, you know, insert adjective here. And, you know, uh, I've only known you for a little bit of time. You know, for me, it was important for you to be on this episode ever since I met you, you know, and this was about six months ago. So I'm, I'm super proud of you and Thank I've you. only known you for a short amount of time, man. So. Thank you. Kudos. And, and I hope that you're able to go ahead and touch 
as many people as you can with your journey. Uh, and I hope this helps, you know, I hope this platform does help men. So do I. Um, so as we conclude our episode, I do want to go ahead and give the national drug and alcohol treatment hotline, which is 1-800-662-HELP. Again, that's 1-800-662-4357. So I definitely want to go ahead and thank everyone to, for being here today. Uh, this is episode seven of the Stigmatized Podcast, and this can be found on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and the iHeartRadio. Thank you all for being here.